Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, April 25th, 2017, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. Hopefully, Anastasia may have the night off. Uh, she was going to let us know, so uh, it'll be a surprise. Just a reminder uh, for tonight and for the next few weeks, Mercury is retrograde until May the 3rd. So if you need to do an Internet search to find out what that means, or you can look on our website on the headline news page, because there are certain things that you shouldn't and should do during this time. Well, tonight we're all happy to welcome our friend Craig Campobasso back to the show. If you missed his previous visits, Craig is an Emmy-nominated casting director in Hollywood, an author, a screenwriter, producer, director, and acting coach. Because of his long friendship with Dr. Frank Strangis, who wrote Stranger at the Pentagon in 1967, He is carrying that story to the audience of today through a movie based on this astonishingly true story of an E.T. visiting the Pentagon in the late 50s. His short version of the film has already won many awards. An equally talented author, Craig has also written a trilogy, autobiography of an extraterrestrial saga, and is now working on his fourth book. You can check out his websites, which are strangeratthepentagon.com, where you can watch the short film, and autobiographyofnet.com. So um, at the top of the show, I I don't think we're going to have the news tonight, but we will um, ask a couple of questions for Lavendar because there's some astrological things happening that I think we need to hear about. And we'd like to thank Jada and Fiona for hosting the switchboard tonight for anyone who has a question or comment for Craig. You can check out our online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com. And that's a safe place to connect with other Starseeds and people of like minds, thanks to Tammy's dedication and help with our forum. You can download our shows on iTunes or right here on Blog Talk Radio. If you'd like to show your support of our program, please click follow on our page here at Blog Talk, and you'll get our weekly show notices. The toll-free number for StarseedHotline.com is 888-881-0881. The Stage 1 Starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. Now, for those who need healing of any kind, whether for yourself or your pets, Tammy's powerful remote sessions will make a difference. And if you have a birthday coming up, you don't want to miss out on your 10 hours of power, you can find out when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. And if you want an interpretation of that chart, please order about two or three months ahead of time to make sure you get it in uh, before your 10 hours because we do have a waiting list. So um, I am going to bring Lavendar on right now because Anastasia has the night off. So let me get your mic open. Hey, Lavendar. I'm here. It, hey there. 
Well, um, Anastasia had some um, unexpected company show up that she hadn't seen in over 20 years. So um, she asked if she could have the night off, and I said, of course, have fun. So um, just before we bring Craig on, and I see Craig is already here, um, I just wanted to ask you if you would make a comment about um, the astrological or astronomical positions of uh, the planets right now. I noticed today that the moon um, was at galactic degree in Aries, Mercury at galactic degree in Aries, and Uranus at galactic degree in Aries. Um, how do you? What would you say? How would this affect the masses on, on a on a um, more you know generic or general level? Okay. Well, <laughs> I've been looking <laughs> at this transit now um, for a, a couple of weeks, knowing that it was coming. I didn't know whether to buckle up, Buttercup, or just hold on to the the tree as the wind was blowing me off the world, <laughs> because this <laughs> this configuration is so dynamic and it's so pointed toward uh, big changes like you can't imagine. I, I don't know what all is going to happen in the world in the next 48 hours, but I can tell that we're definitely going to be experiencing some kind of fire, some kind of strong energetic push toward um, changing things on the planet. I don't know whether war is, is, is part of this or not, I know that Aries is the sign of war, and here's Uranus, Mercury, and Moon all sitting at the top. So we do have those problems with several um, dictators in the world that are threatening war. So it's like, okay, I'm paying attention to that. I'm also paying attention to the earthquakes and the volcanoes and seeing what's going to be, you know, um, uh, triggered by this configuration. The good news is that when it's over, then, then we have a clear path of making a lot of changes for the better on the planet. The, all, the other thing that I was kind of looking at was the, um, the timing of everything that's happening now is bringing us closer and closer to what it is that we really want to personally do in our lives. What's important to us now? You know, people make lists for New Year's. People make lists for their solar return. But I'm thinking that we need to write down at least one or two or three priorities, things that are really important to us now, because so much is happening in the world. When you get involved with blogs and emails and, and, and getting all excited about different things that are happening that doesn't have your name on it, this is a time to really say, okay, what has my name on it? And stick to what has your name on it. Because if there's nothing you can add to a world situation over in the Middle East or somewhere else, if you're not connected to that in any way, then just focus on your on your health, your family, the things that are important to you. Uh, start thinking about uh, how to bring in the energies that are going to give you more um, direction with your alignment of where you want to go in your life. And remember that all of us together have been activated at different times, but the opening that happened on December 20th of 2012 really is the place that I'm tracking a lot of these star seeds that are rising up and starting to make a difference all over the planet. And of course you've heard me say so many, many times that I held that information in a bank vault for 25 years for the kids that were born after 1980 because now they're grown and I was, I was told to wait until they were grown. And so the information that I'm putting out uh, on out of the vault 
is is mainly for these kids and for their children because I know that the ones that are born after this period of time they have a different kind of consciousness they're they're not so subjected to the polarity dance that the rest of us have been subjected to on, on the planet for so many years and I'm noticing that I'm getting a lot of of um, orders for sessions with these people that were born after 1980 and when I ask them I say well how did you find me and here's what most of them are saying and it's almost like uh, some kind of beam is coming from the ship or coming from upstairs to do this they'll say things like I had a dream about starseed I got up and I googled it and I found you and that's happening time after time so it lets me know that in the ethers, in the in the energetics, that there's some kind of code or symbol that's being sent to the planet. And for those that have been awakened that are starseed, or maybe they're not awake, but they're just starting to think that maybe they're awake, are, are starting to come our way. Or maybe the ones that are awake are now waiting for their upgrades, because I'm finding that the upgrades are really coming fast and furious, especially every time these planets um, go into a 25, 26, or 27 degree role like the one that we have now in Aries. So that's what I have to say about the Uranus and Mercury and Moon being in Aries right now is buckle up, buttercup. <laughs> that's what I have to say. <laughs> well, on a on a more like personal individual level, um, I would think that this combination, especially, I mean, the Moon was only in Aries today, so tomorrow that'll be moved out, but we still have Mercury and Uranus at galactic degree in Aries. And I would just like to say that if you've been feeling irritable or impatient or um, just like I can't take this anymore, that's what these um, planetary energies can stir up, especially if you've been kind of um, trying to sit tight and hold tight and put up with something. But I think by the time Uranus moves out of here, um, you'll be free. The other of thing whatever. That, yeah, the other thing about this, um, Ariel, is that I got a phone call from New York today telling me that they saw yesterday people just falling down and getting hit by cars and people weren't paying attention. People were walking around texting and walking and hitting, getting hit by taxi cabs. And it's, it's like you can't be distracted by technology in the next 48 hours or you just might be clipped. It's like you've got to really pay attention if you're driving. If you're driving, pay real close attention to where you're at. If you're in Los Angeles on those freeways and people start honking their horns and getting out of the car and starting to beat on your trunk, it's like, <laughs> really, I mean, really, this is the kind of thing that's happening everywhere. And, I've, and I'm getting emails and, I'm, so, and I'm, I'm looking at the news and I'm seeing it all just happening all at once. So it's like, you know, really pay close attention. If you don't need to go out, then don't go out in the next two days is what I'm saying. If you have business to do, then just be very careful. Right. Well, especially with Mercury retrograde, you can't really rely on, on your snap decisions to be correct. So, yeah, um, I just I just know that I've talked to a few people, and, and it was kind of the same, you know, just being a little bit irritable and, and not discontent at, at the least. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, um, Uranus and, and Mercury and Aries can, can stir up. 
So I just wanted to uh, comment on that before before we bring Craig on, which we're just about really ready to, to do then. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That's really important for people to know about in the next 48 hours, yeah. Well, sure. I mean, if you're walking around just feeling, you know, irritated and, and angry, understand that it's you're being influenced by planetary energies and it's not really that there's anything wrong with you but you need to you know just take a look at um, things in your life that might need to change and make those changes before right. uranus does it for you right that's, yeah. that's exactly right right okay well um with that i am going to let's see there's craig let me get your mic open sweetie oh come on i clicked it okay there it goes now it's spinning Okay. Hey, Craig, welcome to Does the show. Does that mean I'm on? <laughs> You're on. <laughs> I'm on the air. How are you guys? <laughs> great. That's awesome. I am too. You. So, Craig, I'm so glad that you're you're with us today. And um, I was reading over your bio, and um, I noticed that you worked with David Lynch. Yes, I did. Do you have any David Lynch stories that you could share with us that he would Oh, like I have so many. I um you know, I began uh right out of high school. Um I got offered a job um on the original on Dune, uh which was being directed by David Lynch, produced by Dino and Raffaella De Laurentiis, the father daughter producing team. And of course Frank Herbert, you know, who wrote the book. So um, and, of course, I was so young, I didn't know who any of those people were. So um, <laughs> I <laughs> I turned the job down because it was being a production assistant, and I really didn't want to do that. But then, uh, lo and behold, they called me uh, the following week and said, really, please, can you just start? Um, we, we've already got great references from you, and... Uh, for you, and we'd love for you to be a part of the production. So anyway, long story short, I went and worked on it and um, just learned so much uh, from watching David. At that time, he had been nominated for uh, for an Oscar for Elephant Man, um, and of course, Eraserhead was out, uh, which is his film from uh, that he did at AFI. Um, but the uh you know the whole um, the whole shoot uh, from pre production to production to post production was a four year period wow isn't that incredible just to make dune and it was very hard because um, they didn't have the visual effect technology like they do now. Um, I'll tell you a few little stories. Um, at one point, Val Kilmer was going was being heavily considered for playing Paul Maud Dib, and uh, Raffaella De Laurentiis, a producer, Val and I went up to this this. Uh, uh, place up in the canyon, and this guy had like this gigantic. It looked like a um, laboratory, and he laid us on these tables, and he didn't even tell us what he was doing, and he poured goo into our eyeballs. What? 
and it freaked me out, right? Oh, and what he was doing, he, he was measuring our eyeballs for a lens because we were there to see if they were thinking about doing a lens in the eyes uh, for the blue within blue eyes. Um, and we were the guinea pigs for the first lenses. But what ended up happening is is that those uh, though we we couldn't use those because the eyes could not breathe. So uh, anyway, long story short, there was um, Kevin Costner uh, when we did screen tests. Uh, Kevin Costner uh, before he was famous um, screen tested. Uh, Michael Bean, who was a very big star at the time, uh, also tested uh, Val Kilmer and Kyle McLaughlin, who was found by a wonderful casting director named Elizabeth Lustig. Um, she found him up in a theater in Seattle and brought him down. And anyway, once once Kyle did his, um, I think Kyle was last, and, uh, and once we all saw his, not like I had anything to do with it, believe me, I was a PA, but they did ask my opinion. Um, but long story short, he... Uh, it was so commanding and it was so good. There was just no doubt in anybody's mind that it was uh, Kyle McLaughlin. So anyway, there the shoot, I can't remember if it was six, seven, or eight months in Mexico City. Um, but the other part of the trivia there is we also made, at the same time, Conan the Destroyer, also being being produced by Dino and Raffaella at the same time at the same studio in Mexico City. So you would always find Arnold or Grace Jones or somebody from Conan on the Dune sets, and the people from the Dune sets were on the Conan sets. We're always always trying to find everybody. So uh, it was a really long. Um, incredible learning experience um, from all of them. Um, I felt very lucky to be, uh, you know, in hindsight, looking back at it, uh, just being able to watch and observe um, these incredible uh, people. Um, uh, I was at an event last night uh, at the uh, for Bates Motel. We were. Uh, they took us up to the Psycho House for dinner afterwards, <laughs> for about 400 people. And I was telling an agent um, that back in the days of Dune, uh, because you see the Bates Motel and then you see Whoville behind it. So I was explaining to them if if you were making a movie today, you would just put green screen up above and then you could digitally put it in. But back in the days of Dune, what they had to do is they had to mask off on the camera the part that was going to then be hand-painted on glass by a, a wonderful gentleman named Albert Whitlock who would hand-paint the background. They would photograph it in light, and then they would lay it over uh, the part that they masked off. So that would sort of be your that, – that was what uh, – a green screen was many years ago. Wow. So there were just so many interesting um so many interesting things and our DP was Freddie Francis and 
I, I w- I've been watching a feud, Betty and Joan. They just had the, the last episode just aired, and um, I had no idea that Freddie Francis had directed Joan Crawford and Trog, her last film, if you remember that. You know, I've just been I've been watching that miniseries about Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. I've been I've been watching it. I'm, I've got one more just to shoot to see. Uh, it's interesting that you brought that up. I wanted to ask you about how you felt at the time that that Dune was being shot about the spice about the women. Uh, how how did that affect you later on when you started putting all the pieces together about how things work here on the planet? Did it did it ever occur to you about the spice and the women that were in that movie? Well, when, when I I couldn't even get through the book Dune when I was that young. I had no I I didn't understand it. I didn't understand the script. Um, there were just too many concepts that were over my head at that time. Uh, the uh, the Benny Gesserit women. Um, by the way, I can almost recite every line from Dune because the <laughs> editing room was right outside my office, so I heard every line forty thousand times, uh, you know, back and forth. But but now when I go back and I look at it and read it and have read it and I totally understand it from a whole uh, whole different perspective. Um, you know that the it, it it's interesting how he just how he set that whole universe up and his son um actually has continued the books uh frank uh, passed away not long after dune i think his wife passed away before the movie and frank may have passed away a little bit after the movie was released so they were true soulmates she worked with him and and i'm sure he left because she left uh, but their son continued uh, the the book legacies. So, does the son pick up about the goddess and the women, and how 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 the power shifted to the female? Does he does he go in that direction? I don't know because I I haven't read uh, the books that that he's written. Um, he has a co-author. I, I have them. I purchased them. I just haven't read them yet. So. Um, but uh, but of course uh, that power shifting over of course to the women is um, again then bringing peace and prosperity and how Jessica chose to disobey the Bene Gesserit yeah. uh, women and have a male to produce the Kwisatz Haderach which um, which brought an end to it and brought the female energy back. Yeah, you know so, I. When I saw this movie, I wasn't, I'm like you, it was kind of over my head the first time I saw it. Yeah. And then several years later, after all this E.T. stuff started happening, then I, I saw it again, and I, and I saw it with clearly different eyes. Absolutely. Yes, completely, completely different eyes. <laughs> if those yeah. of you who are listening have not watched Dune, go pick it up on Netflix or, or, or type it in. So that it'll pick up on your direct TV. I mean, Dune is—it's a training film. It's really a training film. It is a training film, and there are—I uh, would suggest to get the David Lynch version. Um, and there, the Sci-Fi Channel did make uh, Dune, and then Dune Messiah. They—they um, they did the first two books. And uh, they, I think they were the highest-rated programs on their network ever. 
Wow. So, yeah. But, uh, you know, they're very expensive uh, to make. So um, I can see why, you know, I, I was excited that they got through two two books, at least on the Sci-Fi Channel. But uh, the David Lynch version is fantastic. It's just it's just filled with so much richness and, and uh, uniqueness that David always lends to everything that he does. I also noticed that you did the movie Prancer with Sam Elliott. Sam yeah. Elliott has the the coolest voice I believe I've ever heard. Yes, he does. He does. Yeah, when uh when we were making that, we were in a bind. Um It's interesting. I we had a uh on Saturday night, we had a uh a big um premiere for uh the Make a Film Foundation for a film we all worked on for a boy who uh a boy who was uh dying of cancer and then passed away in January. And I literally parked in the building where I cast Prancer, and all of those memories came flooding back uh, on Saturday night. Um, but the we had to shoot in the winter, of course, for the snow in Indiana. And if we didn't shoot by a certain time, the, the antlers of the deers fell off or there was something that had to do with their antlers. I've never heard of antlers falling off, but maybe the young ones, maybe they do fall off and regrow. Do you know? Uh, they do. That's true. They do. Okay, so then that that, that memory was correct. And um, we had offered that role to so many people, and they all passed. And finally, I knew that uh, Catherine Ross and Sam had a little girl. And I said, well, let's, Maybe we should try Sam Elliott. He really was the last resort, um, and he actually said yes. And, uh, boy, his performance was amazing in that. He really, I mean, you know, he got teary-eyed, and he went to a a wonderful depth that that I've not seen him do in other films. Um, But I also discovered Ariana Richards uh, in that film. She's not the main girl. She's the main girl's uh, uh, best girlfriend. And uh, Spielberg later put her in the original Jurassic Park. She was a little girl in Jurassic Park. And not to make anyone feel old, she's about 41, and she has like a two-year-old daughter now. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that just... Isn't that oh, well. something? I know. I look back at all the kids I've cast over the years, and I'm like, oh, my God, they, they have, like, grown kids. <laughs> also noticed that you worked with David Kelly in Picket Fences. Of course, David Kelly, he's done a lot of different things. I'm not yeah. sure I remember Picket Fences. I What what years was that? I think that must be. It was 95, 96, somewhere in there. It starred Kathy Baker and Tom Skerritt. Uh, it was in the town of Rome, Wisconsin. Um, a lot of old timers were on it: Ray Walston, um, Fivish Finkel, um, Holly Marie Combs, who later went on to do Charmed. And uh, I think it was on for about maybe four seasons. I'm not sure, four or five seasons. It was a great. It was a really, really great show. So. Um, some of them were quirky shows. Some of them were a little more d- dramatic. 
Um, but it was a, it was a really nice show. Uh, right after that, he started the practice after uh, Pick of Fences ended. So. Yeah, I, lo- I love the practice. I, I loved I loved yeah. everything that David Kelly does. In fact, um, I noticed that in all of his scripts that he he goes to what's happening in the world and really, you know, uh, yes. gets very environmental. <laughs> about he that. does. He really does. And I will I will tell you, um, in our office we did Pick Offenses and Chicago Hope. And I remember we didn't have a script on a Friday for uh, either show that was going the following week. And on the weekend, David went home and wrote two one-hour episodes for each show, each so brilliant. And just like, this man just did this on the weekend for both shows. Oh, oh. I mean, it, it just—he always just blew our mind, you know. He—he's—he's he's pretty much um, a shy guy, um, you know, because he's—he's so, he's so into, I think, uh, more of an introvert into, uh, into uh, all the psyches and everything. Um, but boy, man, he is one hell of a writer. And who's he uh, married to? Michelle Pfeiffer. Right, Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh, what a comedy. Yeah. Yeah, she would come to the Christmas parties and all of that, and she was very sweet. But I saw her um, a lot when we were doing Dune at Universal because they were also uh, right next to us. They were making Scarface, and uh, so she was on the lot every day. You also worked with Steven Spielberg with Amazing Stories. Yes. Yeah, that was – I can't remember when that was on, but I do remember that – that he uh, put his name to a lot of things that were that were in in that uh, genre. In that genre, yeah, he uh, that was in eighty eighty five and eighty six, I believe, uh, eighty four, eighty five, eighty six, somewhere in there. It was uh, it was two seasons, um, anthology series, um, and probably one of the best times I ever had in my life. Yeah, good. I you know, mean, I was living in Aruba wow. at that time, and we had a little uh, um, video store, VHS videos. But what would happen is they would pirate all the shows that were being shown in the States and put them on VHS, and they would rent them out there in Aruba. And they had that whole series of amazing stories by Steven Spielberg. So I just went and got them all and, and just watched them as one right after another. <laughs> yes, yeah. I I I just so enjoyed it. It, it was really the best time because we got to work with a different director, and they were huge directors as well, um, and uh, and you know a lot of huge actors because everybody wanted to be on the show, work on the show, and all of that. I mean, Mark Hamill came and did one. You know, this is in their heyday of Star Wars and uh, The Empire Strikes Back. Carrie Fisher. Uh, I know she did an episode, and Kevin Costner did an episode. Boy, there were so many stars. Burt Reynolds directed one of them, and, uh, and um, Dom DeLuise and Lonnie Anderson were the main leads in it, and it was so much fun. That's right. when they were together back then. So, Wow. But, yeah, so much fun. I could write a book. <laughs> you know what? I'm getting the feeling, though, that you were placed there for other reasons than being a casting director or being an associate producer. 
knowing who you are now and knowing how you're you're wired up, I'm sure that you were activating everybody on the set. Well, I I could have been, but I I look back now and I see how that that was divinely orchestrated because it wasn't a job that I sought out. Um, The boss that I had, his best friend's sister, was already working on Dune. Uh, Her name was Debbie. And she called me because she knew I was leaving the other place and said, you've, you've, you know, you have a great recommendation. Uh, my brother says you're fantastic. And everybody else says we don't even need to interview you. We just want you to start. And I said, no, I really don't want to do that. Um, I don't want to be a production assistant. And, um, and that was on a Friday. And, um, and as we were uh, back then young, I think I blew my whole $200 paycheck for the week on the weekend, right, having fun. And then reality sat in the following week. And she literally called me on Monday and said, really, will you consider? And I was forced to say yes because I had to have money, right? So, um, and now I look back at it because everything that I'm doing now, it was a training ground for, um, you're doing you know, this uh, big movie, yes. Doing Absolutely. Stranger at the Pentagon, writing my books, um, you know, doing all of, all of that. And it really was, and, and also, uh, you know, just throughout the years working on various big sci-fi films like Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, the original Total Recall, um, all of those things all, you know, just lent me the, the foresight and the learning to, to just see how, how a lot of these things are done and generated and, and made and uh, made successfully. So, um, so, now, uh, so now I'm just very excited to get Stranger, the, the feature film Stranger at the Pentagon off the ground, which we're doing now. So, I know that several people have heard what this story is about, but we do have some new listeners since you've been on. So if you just give us a... A, a, a thumbnail sketch of Stranger at the Pentagon and how it came to you, and 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 tell us what what it's what you're doing with it now. Sure. So I I first read the book in the 80s and um, just thought it was extremely fascinating. And there's actually uh, photographs in the book of this created being named Valiant Thor and his vice commander, uh, Dawn, and another lady by the name that they called Jill. Um, And these photos were taken at the Howard Menger Farm in Highbridge, New Jersey, uh, I believe in 1958. And um, Howard Menger was a a contactee with many human-type extraterrestrials from around the universe, they coming from living on the interior of the planets. Um, and so uh, the, so the, this particular day, Valiant Thor, Dawn, and um, Jill were there. Um, and uh, they were photographed by a retired Air Force photographer whose name was August Roberts, who was also a ufologist. So he knew that he was not from here. Uh, he could feel it 
um, just by being in, in Valiant Thor's presence. And he noticed that he didn't have fingerprints or palm prints, um, that when he looked at you, he looked right through you, and you could feel him reading your soul history. And it's an experience that you have to uh, uh, have to fully understand but you know that they're that that he was doing this, and there is no judgment upon it. It's just letting you know that they know everything about. They know more about you than you know about you in that current body, right? With the limitations of not being fully conscious. So, anyway, um, he uh, took about 250 photographs that day, um, primarily of Valiant Thor and the other two. Um, some of those photographs are in the book, and they're online, and they're on the StrangerAtThePentagon.com website as well. And um, so he was friends with Frank Stranges, who was a uh, minister, a Christian minister, who taught about UFOs and the Bible. So he went to him and said, "This, this is." The, these are pictures of space people, and that man right there, there's something very special about him, pointing to Valiant Thor. And Dr. Frank said, well, why, why do you think that they're, uh, that they're not from here? They look just like us. And then he went on to explain about the finger, the palm prints, that he did speak in other languages, and how he looked through him, et cetera, et cetera. So Dr. Frank at that time in his presentations would... Um, do these like a giant 11 by 14 photos of Adamski ships, the Venusian craft, um, and he and he did a big one of Valiant Thor, which I actually have, um, which I'll be using in the movie, um, and this was used at every one of his lectures, including one that uh, he. He did in Washington, D.C. in December of 1959. He spoke for two weeks at a church, and the night that he was speaking on UFOs and the Bible, um, he would talk about certain things that were in the Bible. He would also talk about um, uh, the Adamski ships, and he would then say, and this is supposedly a man from another planet. That's that's all he knew, and uh, and when really, if you look at the photograph of Valiant Thor, every feature on his face and hands is absolute perfection. So um, anyway, he um, sorry, uh, my phone was ringing. I just knocked it down. There we go. Um, so. Where was I? I forgot. Anybody uh, remember? We were talking about the photo. Of- oh, the photo. That's right. So he's speaking at the church, and he's doing this. He says this, and then afterwards um, he was signing some books. He had a book called Flying Saucerama and, um, at that time, which is about uh, UFOs and pictures of UFOs from uh, all over the world. And a woman approached him. And said, I must speak with you. And he said, I'll be with you in just a moment. She said, no, I must speak with you now. And 
anyway, she took out her Pentagon uh, identification and she showed it to him. And Dr. Frank stood up and uh, they went they went aside from the other people. She pointed to the photograph of Valiant Thor and she said, he wants to meet with you. And Dr. Frank said, you have my undivided attention. They went into a back room. Uh, she said she would pick him up the following morning at 8 a.m. and bring him to the Pentagon to meet Valiant Thor. So she she picked him up. They uh, went in. She took him to a door. She said, he's in there. And uh, he went in there and um, uh, where they had a conversation that lasted uh, about a half hour to 40 minutes, I believe. And um, he told him things that, uh, that he didn't know that he confirmed later with his parents, um, which which were things he also let him hold his space suit he was dressed in a in a in a, a regular suit of the time uh and his space suit was there and he allowed dr frank to uh examine it and he said uh that he had allowed them to do tests on it they had shot it with a maser they didn't have a laser then but it was the the beginnings of a laser uh they had poured acid on it they tried to uh break it with a diamond drill and nothing could penetrate the material and the material including the boots uh was very 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 lightweight so um Anyway, uh, I have always felt that Dr. Frank was in, was there. He he found out about him being there, and at this point in time, he already knew that his mission uh, on Earth. He had he had come here in '57, met with Eisenhower, uh, Nixon, the Joint Chiefs, all the powers that be, um, coming with a divine design to eliminate sickness, disease, uh, poverty, and how to prolong life. And, uh, and it was to be implemented throughout America and when proven successful throughout the rest of the world. Um, and Eisenhower had an immediately uh, incredible feeling about him, put him on VIP status, where he lived and interacted with uh, main the main brass uh, uh, at the Pentagon, uh, meaning the Joint Chiefs, uh, with the President himself, and especially with Vice President Richard Nixon. And um, so uh, the, uh, they had turned it down. The President and the Vice President, from what Dr. Frank told me, were completely for the proposal and did everything in their power to make it happen. But it was the Joint Chiefs and the military complex that turned it down because it would eliminate sickness, I mean, because it would eliminate pharmaceutical companies, doctors, nurses, um, the banking systems, all of those things would crumble and the economy would crash. So that was their reason for turning it down. So when we flash forward, uh, to 59 with him meeting Dr. Frank, I do believe that he chose Dr. Frank to write about his story, which he did. And uh, the book came out in, I think, originally in 1967, Stranger at the Pentagon. And uh, and then there's been some revamps of it over the years. Um, and it's vignettes of stories about Valiant Thor and things that happened uh, throughout the years. So 
Um, I met Dr. Frank um, not by happenstance, I don't believe. It was definitely orchestrated. Um, But uh, my casting partner at the time, who has since passed, um, she introduced me to two of her friends who actually saw flying saucers all the time. They lived in Arizona. And uh, she wanted me to meet them knowing I was into the subject matter. And when I did, the the wife said to me, oh, well, our friend Dr. Frank, she had this sweet little southern accent. And um, and I said, do you mean strangers? Now, I hadn't thought about the book. You know, I read it in the 80s. I may have thought about it in the 90s a few times. This is now 2001. And uh, to that late 2001 or early 2002. And uh, I and she said, yes, do you want to meet him? And I said, I do. So I was literally sitting with Dr. Frank the following week and um, thought it was just going to be a little fan lunch, me being the fan. And we ended up becoming fast friends. And uh, long story short, um, uh, several months after uh, knowing him, he called me and told me that there was a gentleman who wanted to make it into a movie and he had not had good success with other people throughout the years. And would I go to this meeting with him since I was in the film business and, and could greatly um, help guide him? And I said, absolutely. So I went to this meeting with Dr. Frank and his wife. And um, the gentleman who wanted to make it into a movie um, did not have any producing credits whatsoever. Um, actually only had one very small acting credit, so um, I couldn't find anything about him on the Internet. And so when I asked him uh, for any of his credentials, he said, well, I only do business on a handshake. And I said, well, you can't do business with Dr. Frank. So I had to tell Dr. Frank that. And um, anyway, I I, uh, I took him out to lunch to uh, let him know, and he, he really was um, – uh, he was so disappointed, and I literally saw a tear fall from his eye. And I and I tried to explain to him that that the book is just a series of vignettes, and you re- there is really no story there. Um, and then all of a sudden, um, you know, what, what ended up happening was, is I said, well, why don't we do this? Why don't I sit with you, and you just start telling me about Valiant Thor, the crew, the four vice commanders, which are Teal, Dawn, Thawne, and Zan. Then there's another created being from Melchizedek named Yanaya, and his associate is Yo. It's like Y-E-O, it's pronounced Yo. Um, And uh, and there's many others because each each of the... um, each of the craft are 300 feet in diameter. They're double-deckered, and they hold, hold up to 300 people, and they are stationed in and around and above the Earth in 187 locations, including a giant starship that is 14 miles long and 7 miles wide that Valiant Thor designed himself and built. Um, which is which is here, which also houses all of the beings across the universe, other universes. Everybody is 
so entranced with duality because it is not a part of their world. So they, they really come and they learn, and Teal is one of those teachers who teaches the universal beings about earth people and about duality. And then she also teaches earth people about being fully conscious. Let me ask you about the size of that ship again. Give me those dimensions again. Sure. The the starship, you mean? Yeah. Uh, 14 miles long and 7 miles wide. Well, you know, the starship Bethlehem is 27 miles long seven miles across, and three and a half miles high. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow, now, that's, that's amazing. That's a Pleiadian ship that houses 33 different species that come to yes. our planet on Pleiadian lineup in May and November, and then the first week of January and the first week of July to the Tetons up in Wyoming. So, so oh, wow. I'm just curious about those dimensions of the ship. Yeah. So... Um, so he sat and talked to you about the the, the experience right. that he had. So from that is yes. what writing the script is that is that so what you that's did? that's how I started to formulate the script. And and I told Dr. Frank I said, look, we can do it from two perspectives. We could do the script from your perspective, or we could do it from Valiant Thor's. I said I think people on Earth would want to know about Valiant Thor, where you would be more of a secondary part of the story instead of the story being all about you and Valiant Thor being a secondary part. And he agreed. He said, no, it should definitely be about Valiant Thor and his um, his mission. And I said, well, we, what, what I need to do for the movie is just to um, timeline, it, timeline it for those three years that he was at the Pentagon. And um, uh, and he agreed. So we sat down and we talked for, oh, God, maybe a year or two. And I was formulating uh, the script and coming up with ideas. And when I got the first draft, uh, I gave it to Dr. Frank, and uh, he read it. And then he said the next time he saw Valiant, he would give it to him. And uh, a couple of weeks later, he called me and he said, uh, he said uh, the commander came by, and he said he just held the script. He said he doesn't read. He just absorbed it between his hands and knew everything about it. And, um, and, he, and I said, did he give you any notes? And he said, he said no, just tell him good job. <laughs> and I, I thought that was kind of weird. Well, not weird. I just thought it was interesting. So... Well, let me ask you, all the people that, that knew him when he was in the Pentagon, none of those people have come forward. Did they have to sign pieces of paper saying they could never speak about it? I have no idea, and I, you know, I know, um, let me finish that part, and then I'll tell you something else. Um, uh, what, what was I just saying right before that? Valiant Thor said, good job. Good job. That's right. So the next morning I woke up and all the notes were swimming in my head like the rings of Saturn going, woo, and I had to rush to my computer. It was like this thing that I had to do right away, and I wrote all the notes. So every time I did a draft, this was the process, and then the notes would come through uh, on a download from the night before. 
So, um, yeah, isn't that interesting? So here's here's some really fascinating stuff um, because I've been researching it as well uh, so that I could really just present it as much to uh, the people. Um, is um, their Major George Filer, who's a MUFON director in New Jersey, he has the Filer files. I'm not sure if you know about that. Um, people can subscribe to his email um, for free, and he sends out weekly uh, things, uh, by the way. But um, I became friends with George um, in doing Stranger at the Pentagon, and uh he was a major there in 1961, and he did hear about the rumblings of Valiant Thor being there, uh, echoing through the Pentagon. Um, we do know that uh, Harley Bird, who was a part of Project Blue Book at the time that Valiant Thor was there, has confirmed the story. He actually writes the foreword in Stranger at the Pentagon um, over... Over uh, over the years, um, several people said, "Well, you really can't prove that that he worked there." Um, and I said, "Well, actually, I can't. I'm just going off of what I was told." But but um, I have since uh, come in contact with his family, who have produced um, his honorable discharge papers, which clearly stated that he worked during the years William Thor was there uh, at the Department of Defense at the Pentagon under special operations. So, uh, so we had that, but we also had a letter written by Admiral Richard E. Byrd to another rear admiral in, I believe it was 56, um, asking him to bring his nephew Harley into the Department of Defense since he was recently married and had a child and needed a more steady employment. And then we see that Harley Bird is then working at the Pentagon for the Department of Defense in 1957, early 57. Wow. So, so yeah, so we have that. And then there are... Um, there are also uh, a few ladies who um, met him back in those days when they were in their teens. Uh, they don't know each other. Uh, one's father worked for the military, um, and um, another was a UFO group um, in which this uh, teenager belonged. And actually, Valiant Thor uh, came and spoke to that group uh, on two occasions in the same week. And they both described him uh, exactly as he is in the photograph, but they also said something that nobody else has said, and they both said it, and this was coming from a female perspective, that he had a pheromone about him that was so pleasing that it was like an aroma of peace, and you knew that when you were in his presence, you knew exactly that he was somebody who was here to help the planet. And uh, back then, there was a lot of talk of Russia and nukes and all of that, and one of the other ladies uh, whose father was in the military she had heard, she listened to him speak to their group, uh, which were brought out into the desert, 
and um, she asked when it, when it was question time. She asked about that, and he said, "Never fear. We will never let them blow this planet up." Yeah, so, I, I, yeah. So, um, so those are just you know some of some of the uh, stories from over the years. I am sure he has been in contact with thousands of people on the planet. Um, there was another gentleman who Dr. Frank was very good friends with, named Dr. Lee, who lived in Van Nuys. He, uh, boy, he was up in his nineties into his hundreds, I think, before they brought him on the ship to live for good so that he could um, extend his life <laughs> because they were quite fond of him. Wow. And, Do you think he uh, still has that ship over at Lake Mead in Nevada? Yes, it is. It is over at Lake Mead still, yes. And and, yes. and does he still communicate with you, or are you set up with implants to where he's giving you information from afar? Well, I... When when I write, my my experience when I write um, either my books or whatever, I have many guides for my, my books, including some of the vice commanders on the ship, and I, I can distinguish them because all of the guides, what they do is they, when they come in, I can feel their feeling body um, inside me, and I feel their emotions, and I feel everything. And now when I write, I literally see it in full-blown living technicolor. Wow! In my in my in a vision in visions with my eyes open, um, and it's just from years and years and years of doing it, and I think uh, and just uh, uh, opening my awareness and um, uh, really just uh, keeping uh, keeping on the spiritual path. And you know, I just went through another. Um, spiritual awakening. I had my first one, which was a huge one, when I was 26, and I had my uh, a second one. I didn't know you could have a second one uh, in 2014. That lasted for about a year, um, which really was just to uh, bring me more into the phase of of understanding, living, and fully embracing unconditional love on an on even a new deeper level. So now tell us a little bit about the, the short film. I know a lot of our Starseed listeners contributed to that because when we when you sent me the, the film to watch, you had all of our names listed. It was Yes <laughs> I wanted everybody who donated's name on there because it was all of us who created that, and um, uh, and the short film uh, is uh, still doing well right now. This Friday, it's going to be showing at the Roswell Film Festival at 12:45. So if anybody's there, uh, make sure you go and see it. And it's um, it's garnered so much attention. Um, uh ancient aliens called me uh early last year and wanted to do a whole story on Valiant Thor because they had just seen the short film. So I uh I was honored to to go on the show and be a part of it and do the whole story. If people haven't seen it, uh they can Google Ancient Aliens the Mysterious Nine N I N E and uh we're in the latter part of the show. 
Um, they did a fantastic job. Uh, Paul Hellyer, the former um, Minister of Defense in Canada, actually confirmed the story on ancient aliens as well. Uh, so that was pretty awesome. Um, I was invited uh, also last year to Comic-Con uh, on the East Coast to uh, show the film and to do a talk. So that was a huge deal. And um, uh, and then toured all over the United States with it for about a year. And well, did you win the best sci-fi film at the Burbank International Film Festival? Yes, yes, absolutely, we did. We won uh, Best Sci-Fi Short uh, at the Burbank, and then we, the following year we won um, uh, Best Sci-Fi Short uh, Remy Award uh, at the Houston World Fest Film Festival, and they told me that that was out of 400 and I think 63 submissions. Wow. So that was pretty uh, fantastic. And and what I'm just starting to do now, uh, my YouTube is Craig Campobasso. Um, I've got one, uh, one new um, red carpet from the Burbank Film Festival. I just have all these years have not had time to put them together. So I've been putting them together. So the, the first one is ufologist Paula Harris interviewing me, uh, Eileen Davidson, who plays Dina Thor, uh, she interviews Jeff Jocelyn, who plays Valiant Thor, uh, Joel Sweetow, who plays the Empyrean, um, and Mrs. Stranges and her son. And that's that's the first uh, the first one that I released. And then over uh, the course of the next few months, I'll be releasing several more, um, which are going to be uh, uh, lots of interviews with uh, people like Laura Eisenhower, um, Ralph and Marsha Ring, um, Regina Meredith. I'm just trying to think. There were so many. Uh, the J.J. Hurtak and his wife Desiree, who are big fans of the film as well. And um, what about uh, Laura Eisenhower? Does she talk about her grandfather knowing that he'd ever leave any information to her about Valiant Thor? Did she have that before you came along? No, she did not have that before I came along, as far as I know. Um, when we were doing the short film, a friend of mine knew her and said, you should really meet her, and I did. And uh, we got on famously, and um, uh, anyway, so we had talked about it, and I think she may have done some research within her family, um, because she actively talks about Valiant Thor. Um, in a lot of her talks and online as well. So, uh, but she uh, and she was also she's also on Ancient Aliens, talking about Valiant Thor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so what can we help you with next? What are you doing that we can contrib- contribute to to make all everything happen the way you want it to go? Well, right now I'm setting up the um, the feature film. So if people want to make uh, donations, they can on the website at strangeratthepentagon.com. Um, it's uh, just go under uh, the, uh, the tab feature film. Um, and if people still are looking to uh, get new copies of Stranger at the Pentagon, Outwitting Tomorrow, UFO Conspiracy, or Millennium 7, all of Dr. Frank's books, I have new copies. Um, 
they can get the posters to Victor One and the blueprints, uh, the original book poster, um, and uh, the poster of the movie and the poster of uh, the starship as well. And uh, so all of that is there, including you can get the movie on DVD. The DVD has extras behind the scenes as well. So that helps us as well because we're still a little in the hole on the short film, but really trying to move forward with the feature film. So if anybody uh, would like to do that, um, just hit the uh, feature film tab and they can read a little bit about the feature film there as well. And um, so uh, everything's ready uh, to rock and roll. Uh, We're just, um, you know, fielding uh, some large offers. This is a $25 million film because it's heavy in uh, visual effects because we will be uh, up in space about half the time and the other half down on Earth at the Pentagon. So um, I'm going to really do a unique look with the film is – when we're when we're on Earth at the Pentagon, we're going to have that that sort of 1950s, 60s Technicolor look, and when we're up up on the other worlds, uh, the starships and motherships and uh, regular ships, uh, it's going to be all high definition uh, with all the the bright colors and everything like that. So. Um, it's going to be so cool. I, I just can't wait. I'm so excited to get started on it. So, well, you know, when I when I think about the way you started with Dune, and then you had all these experiences through filmmaking all these years, all that was in preparation for the big thing that you're going to do now, and that's this big film, yes. and that's the first of many, I'm sure. Yes. Yes. I I just love this um I just love this subject matter and I love that because it's all connected to consciousness and raising consciousness. So that's that's the one thing that that really um attracts me uh to it and because I know um I I mean when when I was completely asleep just living my daily life saying where's my next paycheck going to come from and uh, you know what? What kind of job can I get? Because I was in the film business. You go from job to job. Um, I didn't even know there was such a thing as duality. I didn't. None of those things ever crossed my mind. <laughs> and, you know, it was like you know extraterrestrials, all of that. Oh, that's just in the movies, right? It's just that. It's just this. And then once I was woken up. Um, at age 26, there's no, no, you cannot go back to sleep. You just, you were just craving to know so much more. And then you start meeting people who have had all these experiences. And by the way, I, you know, I talk to a lot of people in the film business, um, a lot of famous actors and things like that. A lot of these people have had their own experiences and um, some have even seen craft or some have had in, inner experiences or things like that, and they'll say, I've never told anybody this, but I feel like I can share it with you, and they'll share me with me, you know, their experiences, and I just think it's, uh, you know, it's just fantastic. It's sort of like it's okay to talk about it, and I think the more and more we're getting out there, I think people are getting a, or a whole lot easier talking about it. And of, of, <laughs> Excuse me, of course, all of us talk about it, 
but then as as i was as all of these experiences were happening to me back then i would have I would have UFO parties at my house and maybe have a um, ufologist come and show the latest things and talk about it. And then I would share my experiences with my friends. And, um, you know, they were all completely intrigued and fascinated. And gradually they all woke up too. And uh, even a few of them to this day say, you know, back then, always loved you, wasn't quite sure. Right, and then they say, but you know what? I'm just like you right now. Right. <laughs> so, uh-huh. yeah. It's always fun. You know, I, I traveled with uh, Dennis Weaver for four years. Uh, we oh, were doing wow. an environmental project called Economics. He had an institute of economics up in Ridgeway, Colorado, and that's where you introduce uh, people to making money on environmental products in colleges and universities. And um this whole time that I traveled with him, he was very much into ETs, and his wife was actually channeling some uh, ETs now and then. So it was uh, it was four years of great fun. <laughs> oh wow! I love Dennis Weaver. That was fantastic. And uh, in all of the uh, pictures, black and white pictures from uh, times gone by. Um, a lot of stars were at Dr. Frank's uh, lectures and were a part of the panels, including Buddy Epson, um, B. Benedirette, who is the mother on Petticoat Junction, and I always loved her, um, and Aldo Ray, um, and there was a few others. Um, and there was a big Indian chief at the time, and I can't remember his name. And there's photographs of him speaking uh, that I have, and um, uh, it is just you know it was amazing of all the people that were just fascinated with it, and uh, even back then, all the you know those celebrities. So back to the subject of nuclear war that you mentioned uh, that he said that that would never happen here, and I've had that same message for years from different ETs at different times saying that they have everything set up to where if anybody starts to push those buttons, they will totally cancel it out. I mean, they have actually centuries that, that stand 24 hours a day and taking turns at NORAD. Yes, I'm sure they do. And, and the different places where, where the nuclear bombs are. So um, the other day when Korea shot off that missile and it blew up right away. I went, yep, they're they're on point. They're on their job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And and they have already shown this uh over all these all these years is where they've gone in uh the ETs have gone in and they've shut down all the weapons. Oh yeah. To show them that they can do this, that they have the power to do that. So um, they've done that throughout the years, and, and uh, I know a lot of people have come out and talked about it, uh, you know, ex-military people, um, things like that. So, um, you know, you can, find, you can probably find their testimonies online. I mean, I found a, a senator, and I, I, I think his last name might have been McCall, but he came out and talked about uh, he saw papers during the Eisenhower era on his desk that he looked at, uh, and it showed him meeting with extraterrestrial races. Wow. So, 
yeah, and he, you know, he actually put the video out and um, and did that. I know Dr. Stephen Greer. Um, I don't know him personally, but I've but I hear that a lot of these um, guys who are who are way up there, he puts them on tape telling their whole story, and when they pass, he releases the videos. I hadn't heard about that. Oh, that's yeah. Yeah, so um, I've I've heard about it through the grapevine, and um, you know, so once they pass, because then their pension, they can still keep their pension, and um, and survive, and uh, come out and talk about it. So, um, and of course, you know, Steve Bassett did that whole thing in uh, Washington, where you know everybody came and testified. Um, I forgot exactly what it was called. Um, Several years ago. Um, see, this is what happens when you get old. <laughs> <laughs> the, the last time that you were on the show, you were you were headed for Kansas City to do a uh, an event up there. How did that go for you? Oh, that was great. Um, that was put on uh, by Margie Kay, who is one of the um, uh, MUFON directors there. And I think we had about 250 people and, uh, you know, showed the film, did a big question and answer with the audience. And uh, I love Kansas City. It was so much fun. And uh, and I knew another friend of mine there, Sonia, so I was able to see her and, and um, you know, just have a great time. So, yeah, wherever it went, um, there were always pretty, you know, at least two to 500 people. Uh, when it screened at the um, UFO Congress, there were fi- over 500 people in the audience that night, So, uh, which was a really great turnout. That's great. Well, I yeah. think what time it is, and, and I, I would like to um, pass you over to Ariel, who has the switchboard. Okay. And would you be able to take some questions from our audience? Absolutely. I would love to. Okay. So um, for those of you listening, please uh, go on StrangerAtThePentagon.com, and if you have any extra cash around, throw it toward our friend here because he really needs to get this movie done. So yes. back to you, Ariel. And, Craig, we'll, we'll talk later. Okay, honey. So... Um, I, I wanted to make the point that in order to keep the information and subject matter accurate and true, that you have chosen not to let a big studio you know, do this because then you would lose creative control. So, right. So doing it with um, crowd support uh, is the way you're going, and, and I think it's – a very wise choice because you need to make sure that the story is is not um, you know distorted or or twisted in any way. So everybody, right. this is why <laughs> this is why we need the star seeds all over the planet. Um, any any I mean, what is the the the, the denominations uh, for for donations? Uh, they can make if they if somebody's going to make a huge donation, it's better just to contact me instead of doing it through the website because it takes a huge fee out of it. Um, but um, if if anybody knows also, 
any uh, millionaires out there, by the way, um, we do we do offer a finder's fee as well. So because I do have to raise twenty five million dollars to make this film, and um, uh, we've got our uh, big uh, production attorney on board who will be handling all the investments and the escrow, who will also be the production attorney. Um, they've done over 300 big, giant studio pictures, and they love this movie, by the way. They love it. Um, so there's that. But uh, anybody can make any kind of denomination that they want. They can you know, uh, send a dollar, a hundred dollars, fifty dollars, five hundred dollars, whatever, whatever they want. They just put it into uh, the PayPal uh, thing there. Um, that's on the website when they click and they can put in their own denomination. So, um, but again, if anybody uh, knows any big millionaires out there or even billionaires, I'll even take a trillionaire. Because <laughs> 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 then $25 million to them is like five bucks to us, right? Um, right. yeah. But, yeah, but we do offer a finder's fee, so they can contact me uh, directly and that kind of stuff, and then I can fill you know, fill them all in more uh, about everything that's going on. Okay. Oh, yeah, I just wanted yeah. to um, point that out because, I mean, it's it's it may take a little bit longer when you're, you know, working with donations from, um, from people from everywhere, but then – um, but but what shop. will help us uh, with their donations now? It will help me to get started on my storyboards, and because storyboards take the longest during production, um, so the storyboards are creating each scene um, through me telling an artist exactly what's going on, so that. Everybody in the production knows how the film will be shot, what each shot will look like, uh, what camera angle it should be, all of those uh, little specific things. So it becomes the production Bible is what it does. Mm-hmm. So, so, so that's the so first a lot thing of these, to, to get off the ground. Yeah, so that will be the first thing that I'm going to be using the donations uh, for is to – get that going while um you know while we're going out to um uh big investors uh, to finance it. Now, of course, once the film is done, then um then we will take it to studios because you have to have a big distribution, but the film is already done and it was done our way. It it didn't it didn't have uh a studio head telling you how to make your film. Right. You see, you right. see the difference, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, yeah, use them yeah. for distribution. Right. So that's and that's that's one thing I learned from Dino De Laurentiis is a lot of his films he got, he did it through private financing, and uh, then he when he took it to the studios, he was able to keep creative control and he was able to make a bigger distribution deal because everybody wanted it. Right. So, yeah. Cool. Well, you know your business really well, so um, yeah. we just encourage everyone to go to strangeratthepentagon.com and, you know, d- donate what you can because, you know, I figure there's <clears throat> there are way more than 25 million star seeds on this planet. So if everybody yeah. chipped in a dollar, there you go. 
There you go. That would be it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. And so of course, really- if we, if, if I can throw out, um, you know, my uh, book website, autobiography of an a n e t dot com. Uh, that trilogy of books is all for star seeds, uh, all about star seeds and uh, everything. So they can go check it out there. There's a super fan special if nobody's read them and want to get all three, or you can buy them individually. And uh, if you buy them through the website, I personalize them and autograph them. So. Excellent. Well, yeah. they're, they're a major work. And, I mean, I mean, after you get done with Stranger at the Pentagon, then, you know, I, I can see you doing the same thing with your books. Yes, definitely, definitely. And I'm writing book four now. So Yeah, so tell uh, me what is what is the Huroid Revolution? Revolution. So in um in the books there is uh there is a race that are called their Huroid attendants and Huroids also help. Um, with a lot of the different tasks and things on the on the giant motherships and all of that, and basically um, how the Huroids came about is they were an aggressive race that blew up their world. They blew it to smithereens, and there was no there was no um, outlet for them to incarnate into bodies. So they were given a choice that they could they could go to other planets and wait in reincarnation cycles there or the uh or they could then go into a synthetic body that is created um not a clone or anything like that it's really still it's it's being it's being created um to its full potential and then, so really what they're doing is they're now doing a service and working off their karma within the alignment in helping and doing all sorts of tasks. So, and they're all, they all have different levels of, um, of, of tasks and things that they do. Uh, one of the heroids is fully versed on everything on Earth, and some of them are programmed... Um, uh, with not such great manners or behaviors or or program dualistic, uh, so that it also keeps the fully conscious beings on their toes about what it's like to be around somebody who's dualistic, so it actually keeps them in check. So it kind of works both ways. So in book four, um, there there's going to be a Huroid uh, revolution revolting against... Uh, revolting against uh, uh, what some of them would call being a slave race, which is really not what it is. But, of course, that's what a few of them think it is. So, Wow, that sounds fascinating. That that would be a great yeah. movie, too. Yeah, yeah, it is. It yeah. really is. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, Craig, uh, we have a caller that has been waiting patiently to speak with you. So okay. Okay. I'm ready. You're going to be talking to Philip. Let me get your mic open here. Okay, okay. Philip, you are on the air with Craig. Hi, Good Philip. Good evening, everyone. Hello. Hi. 
uh, great interview so far. Really enjoyed it so far. Thank um, you. Uh, I w- I, I've seen your short movie, Strange at the Pentagon, and, of course, I'm very fascinated. Um, this is a cr- very great short film. And uh, I was I was wondering, uh, what is your personal take on when the full movie comes out? What do you, how do you think this is going to affect the global consciousness? Well, I, I the short film has affected everybody in, in a way that uh, people didn't know about the story. Um, I the, one of the reasons I'm really liking to tell the story is to heal all of those old wounds. It's not to point fingers or say this person did this and this is the outcome. This is actually what has happened, and now what can we do to heal that whole situation of the aftermath of it? So. Um, I'm hoping that the feature film, uh, which really goes into a lot more depth and detail of Valiant Thor's whole mission and even bigger parts of his mission that have not, never been mentioned, um, will help people to uh, understand that and that, uh, and that everything is healed, uh, of course, through unconditional love and uh, of course not pointing fingers and not doing all of that but to say this is this is uh this is a story uh, it's and and by the way the the uh the feature film of course is going to be inspired by the book um and uh, so uh, so people i think when they see it will um will see that there is life out there in the universe and mm-hmm. that um, we're going to be able to start interacting with that life. I think it's a, it almost feels like to me like a part of a disclosure, not disclosure, but a part of a disclosure where everybody who has ever watched Star Trek has always believed that that exists. Right, every mm-hmm. mo- most people that I've met who are real true Trekkies. So here's something that I think is bringing a reality to it, where I think people will then try to will more understand that these beings are there, and um, and and it will start to remove any kinds of fears and things like that. Because at a certain point, the planet has to integrate back into universal society. So. So you want to make that movie, uh, you intend to make it for everyone and not only for Starseed people? Is that, is that what you want to do? Well, it's the Starseeds will get the movie on a completely different level than the people yeah. who, uh, that, that, who are still sleeping. Um, mm-hmm. But it will definitely be a seed to wake up those people who are still sleeping to to then think and wonder, you know, film is such a wonderful genre because it really is the ultimate teacher for the world. Um, because when people see it, and, and, you know, if there's a really, really good story, um, uh, people see that, that they can change and, oh, wow, that's, that's kind of, I'm kind of like that character. Do I, do I act like that? Maybe they would change their ways or or something like that. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's uh, going to be 
something that I think everyone will, on some kind of level, even if it's on an enjoyment level, will get, and then maybe later on when they watch it again, they might wake up a little bit. So. Yeah. yeah. And I, I do also believe that there is uh, this, this whole thing about wanting proof. Um, I feel it's not even about proving the whole story. I believe uh, what this is going to be about is uh, how to raise the, the vibration of the individuals and the collective consciousness and, you know, things like proof, if there is alien life, if there are starships, these are all things that will um, work themselves out after the uh, vibration hits a certain point. Yes. So. Have you ever wondered, Philip, if when the world's consciousness gets to a certain level, that the veil will be broken and that people will actually just start being able to see them? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, that's crossed my mind many a times, and uh, I, I, and you know, there are certain people that just know. They, uh, I have a friend in New York who, him and his wife, literally are called outside every day, and they're told to take pictures in the sky, and they take them in, and their ships in the photographs uh, all the time. So, um, you know, so there's people who have that major connection, mm-hmm. and some who go out and call them in and yeah. uh, all of those things. And, of course, lots of people have astral uh, projections onto crafts that I've talked to as well. So, um, But, uh, yeah, I think that uh, as we all evolve and uh, we start to become more of that collective one consciousness, we'll, all that whole veil will break apart and, and we'll be able to see it. And where we might be able to see it, maybe the person who's still asleep can't see it. Yeah, and so. uh, this is, of course, to all the naysayers who focus so much uh, on the proof thing that while focusing on this proof, they actually dismiss uh, the point of, you know, raising their vibration and seeing right. things actually for themselves at a certain point. Exactly, exactly. And and I look at it this way. There, You know, this is, I look at this as, a, this is a really fantastic story. Um, I myself have not met Valiant Thor in person or any of his crew in person. Um, but I, I uh, let everybody, the listeners in tonight about what I do know and just uh, and keeping an open mind and, uh, and an open heart. And uh, I think we would rather see a positive movie like this than another one where the aliens are coming to eat us. So, um, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, enough of that. Right, enough of those movies. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> well. well <clears throat> Philip, I want to thank you for calling in. It's always good to hear your thank voice. Thank you so much. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Philip. Nice talking. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye, bye bye, Philip. Bye bye. So, um, is there anything else you want to um, mention? I, I don't. 
let me just ask the, the, the listeners one more time. If you have a question or comment for Craig, if you are already on the switchboard, you'll need to just press 1 so that we know you want to come on the air. And if you're listening on the computer, then you need to pick up the phone and dial 917-889-8292. And then once you're in, press 1. And um, while we're waiting to see if anyone else has any questions or comments, um, is there something else that you would like to talk about? We've talked about a lot of movies and books. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we could talk a little bit about uh, the Tehran trilogy, if you like, um, for anybody who hasn't read those. Um, uh, they they came about when I uh, had my first spiritual awakening uh, at age 26. Um, I was visited by master teachers over and over and over in my dreams, um, and uh, uh, and at a certain point they fed me this golden light that went in and ballooned inside my body and and woke up all the cells in my body, and that's when I started seeing everything from a from a perspective of um, love and unity, and I went through uh, an eight month period where I sobbed every day for 8 to 12 times a day um, because I couldn't believe how beautiful everything actually was. Um, wow. I could just look at the simplest of things, and I would just cry. And I, I, I have to be honest, I didn't think I was ever going to stop crying. Um, but it, it finally subsided, and then I realized um, that this was like preparing my vehicle for writing. Um, so I wrote a 400-page book that was about all of these experiences I was having with these master teachers and uh, all of the different experiences that went along with it, which is actually detailed in uh, book two of the trilogy, Waking Tehran. Um, but um, then uh, one of my main teachers uh, said, uh, what would you what would you do if I told you you just wrote that book for yourself? And I said, then I've learned a whole lot about myself. And he said, now it's time to sit down and write the real book. And that's when I sat down and wrote the uh, autobiography of an extraterrestrial saga. Uh, the first book's I Am Tehran, second book's Waking Tehran, and third book is Tehran's Dossier. So it really entails, um, Tehran is a, uh, uh, at the college level, at the University of Melchizedek, he is the one who prepares um, the messengers and the mighty messengers, the star seeds, to come into earth, and uh, he trains them. And uh, so it's about that whole process, but it's also um, interesting because Tehran was born dualistic, in a fully conscious society. So they say there's a anomaly about every 200,000 uh, beings born, one will be born dualistic, which helps them to stay in check. And, uh, and, and the one who is born dualistic, uh, Tehran was chosen to do this because he's actually teaching these fully conscious beings that they're going to be dualistic once they hit earth plane. So, so that's also a part of the teaching as well. And, uh, but we learn about um, 
the individual duality and we learn more about the universal duality throughout the course of all three books and um uh there's just you know there's great love stories there's great twists and turns and plots and things that um you know spur the reader on and uh, I love doing that. But the one thing that I was really adamant about is I was seeing these things so clearly I had to find an artist to bring it to life. And each book has, I think, 70 to 80 um, illustrations um, of all of these master teachers, these beings, gods, goddesses, paradise, sons, um, commanders, uh, inside their spaceships, what some of the craft look like, um, what they wear, all kinds of just amazing things just to bring it to life. And a lot of starseeds have written to me and said that the artwork really helped to activate them as well uh, from reading the story because what it did for them is it reminded them of home and they knew that that's where they were from. Wow. And a lot of them call, uh, and I spoke to several of them, and a lot of them were just crying, but a beautiful cry. And um, uh, so they they were very um, powerfully affected by that. And um, and I also created in the back of the book a terminology of the extraterrestrial worlds. Um, so uh, if anybody does decide that they like to um, read them, um, I suggest reading the terminology first so that when you're going through the book, I, I put the terminology in there so it didn't take us out of story because if I had to explain everything, it, it would be way too long. So, um, uh, and, and, of course, that was a, a wonderful thing I learned from Frank Herbert's book, Dune, because he had a terminology in the back of his book as well. And I thought, oh, that's the perfect thing. Then, then it doesn't yank you out of story, uh, and you can just keep moving along with it. So, um, anyway, so uh, so uh, so the website's autobiography of on anet dot com. And you can see a lot of the artwork in color on the website as well. So uh, the artwork is just—it's stunningly beautiful. Um, yeah, thank you, thank you so yes, much. It is. And, and of course, you know Sylvia Brown wrote the foreword to Book One, and a lot of celebrities and things did, um, you know, uh, quotes for the back cover. And Book Three, um, uh, Bashar and um, uh, Chip Coffee did uh, uh, quotes for the back of the book as well. So that was very nice. Oh yeah, it's 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 nice to be well received by your peers. Yeah. Right? Have you guys ever had Bashar on your show? No. Wow. I don't think because you know. Wow. Yeah. You, I should. I should hook you guys up because you know I did um, uh, his film. I cast his film, and it's being released in June. It's called Bashar First Contact. If you type that into your uh, Google, it'll come up, and you can go to the website and watch the trailer. James Woods actually uh, narrated the. Uh, piece and I cast all the actors in it so it's actual Daryl Anka's story um, about uh, you know he channels Bashar who is uh, extraterrestrial 500 years in the future but Bashar can go into any timeline and channel information in 
cool. So, yeah, it is cool. Yeah, we'll have to check that out. Very cool. Yeah, for sure. And if you guys are interested, let me know, and I'll hook you guys up for sure. Great. Thank you. So, um, so what is um, next? Have you got, um, obviously, I mean, you're working on the, the full-length movie, and uh, you've got your fourth book you're working on. But as far as um, showing, yeah, um, I know you've got the the Roswell Film Festival uh, this year. Do you have anything else yeah. planned as far as your travels? Do you know, I, um, I was going to contact uh, the sisters again over at the Integratron about doing another screening there because, you know, that's where all the original uh, contactees were uh, in the 50s and 60s uh, when George Van Tassel was alive. And um, they used to have UFO space conventions out at Giant Rock where uh, George Van Tassel ran the airport, uh, him and his wife, uh, and kids lived underneath the rock. Um, uh, it had been dug out. Uh, there was somebody else who ran the airport before George, and it, uh, a big uh, cave sort of uh, had been dug out where this man lived uh, beneath the rock. Um, and uh, anyway, so George ended up living there, and George had his own uh uh, contact with a being as well named Salgonda, who gave him the blueprints to build the Integratron, uh, which, uh, when it was fully operational, would have reactivated the cells and kept you young for life. Um, so that's what it was being built for. So um, anyway, it uh, it had... Oh, gosh, I think George passed away in 78. Um, the whole Integratron was built, but it um, it was never uh, fully operational. Uh, but they do these wonderful uh, – There's uh, it's two stories up uh, in the dome. They, uh, they do sound baths up there, and it's a sound chamber. And uh, so they do the bowls. And so when you're lying there on your mat, you it really just goes through your whole chakra system, and you feel almost like you're levitating. It's just such a, a great realm of peace. And um, uh, it, it's uh, they, at one time I was there, and they had the Gregorian chanters from Italy, and they were standing in all different sections. So when you throw your voice, if you if you speak really low. On the other side of the dome, it will be a normal voice. So uh-huh. it's interesting how all of this is. So um, there's been many, many, uh, many people, and it's it's you know uh, extraterrestrial technology and all of that. So I've done um, since the movie was made several um, several screen we've done several screenings there to packed houses and it's so special to be back in the place because uh um i met them in 2005 i believe with dr frank they had asked dr frank they were going to re- start to redo the ufo space conventions and uh, so dr frank and i went out and we just um spent the day with uh, the owners uh two sisters and another lady named barbara and uh, Dr. Frank started telling stories about the early days there at the UFO space conventions, which he used to be the MC of, which I didn't know. 
Right. So and I think Valiant, wasn't Valiant Thor out there as well. I believe that there's there's a lot of talk that Valiant Thor was out there. Um, I okay. don't I don't know. I'm sure he was, but I I don't know of any particular incident or or what have you uh, where he was there. But um, um, do you do you know um, Judy Beebe? I do know Judy Beebe. She was on the show, and I believe it was her that said when she was like 17, she met Valiant Thor at George Van Tassel's at, at the at that. Uh, you know, oh, right that. I didn't know it was there. See, yes, I, I've I've talked to Judy, but I don't remember that. And um, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'm remembering the 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 details correctly. But I remember right. it, it, it's like wow to be 17 years old and to meet a being like that. I mean, she'll never forget that, um, no matter how long she lives. So, but right. yeah, I believe that she said that she actually met Valiant Thor, and I think she said it was there, you know, at Giant Rock. So yeah. um, next time you see Judy, you might want to ask her about it. I'm going to call her, yeah, for sure, and ask her just to refresh my memory because um, I have talked to her, and I do know that she had uh, met him uh, when she was young. And uh, interesting, interestingly enough, um, I think the thing that I remembered is she said that he was teaching them how to communicate with beings on Venus through a ham radio. And interestingly enough, um, when people do EVPs, there's one of the only three EVP practitioners who is certified in uh, in the United States, who's a friend of mine, and she has the um, she has the uh, uh, equipment, but she uses the ham radio for the white noise that brings the voices through, and that's fascinating. So once hmm. with her, once with her, um, there was a voice that came through. Um, well, we, well, I actually said, well, I want to see if we can, uh, you know, contact somebody uh, from a craft. And there was actually a woman speaking in an extraterrestrial voice, uh, in a language, I mean. And I've asked many different people throughout the years what what this what this language was, and nobody knew what it was. And recently, I came to two people who read star languages, um, and they both said it was an old Pleiadian dialect. So hmm. I thought that was interesting. So wow. so so I thought that was interesting that he was teaching them, uh, as I recall from what Judy had said, how to speak to people from Venus um, on a ham radio. And of course, we know you know they live on the interior of Venus um, as well, because you know I recently did a radio show and was talking about that, and they, and they didn't get that you can live on the interior of a planet, that you can that you can have these, um, you know, when you have these advanced technologies, you can do anything. I mean, they can compress the dirt on the inside and build everything in, in a very short period of time. And uh, anyway, they, uh, 
they didn't believe it because they were saying, you know, Venus is made of gas and all of that stuff, and uh, uh, and that they they couldn't believe that anybody could live on the inside of a planet. So, mm-hmm. but uh, anyway, but well, that's you know that's okay. Well, good. They won't be clogging up the airwaves. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, you know, to each his own, I guess. But uh, right. but that's the thing is, you know, the more you know, you just know that truth is stranger than fiction. I mean, yeah. it's amazing. It's just amazing. So. Gosh, well, Craig, I cannot believe we are out of time. Um, this time has just flown by, and. As I always say, it's, that's a mark of a good guest because, yeah. oh, we're out of time already. So it's just been wonderful <laughs> having, <clears throat> excuse me, having you come back and visit with us, get us caught up in on the uh, new developments with Stranger at the Pentagon, um, working on your fourth book. Your trilogy is out. So um, once again, the uh, website for Stranger at the Pentagon is strangeratthepentagon.com. <laughs> <laughs> and um, if you can click on the full feature uh, tab to make a donation. And um, the other website for uh, Craig's books is autobiographyofanet.com. So um, when are you going to Roswell? Um, I'm not going to Roswell because I'm I'm busy uh, working on some movies, so I'm unable to get there this time around. Oh. So, but the film, um, is yeah, the film, the film is already there, and uh, they're going to have the screening on uh, Friday, this Friday at 12:45 p.m. So be sure and go if you guys, anybody's in the area. And that is uh, what Roswell, New Mexico. Obviously. Yeah, Roswell, New Mexico. Yeah. Yes, of course. Okay. Okay. Well, there's a Roswell, Georgia, but I don't think anybody's coming. I know. Oh, well, see, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, I remember when I first moved here and I saw Roswell. Every time I go by, it's like, woo <laughs> You get used That's to it. That's great. That's great. So, well, Craig, I just I thank you so much for spending your time, your love, your energy um, with our audience on the work that you do. Um, we are just so honored to know you, and it's wonderful to know that um, you know we are going to get this movie done, and Thank we you. will all have a part in it. Thank you, and and uh, I love all of you guys with all my heart, and uh, I'm so happy to have you all in my life too. And much love going out to all the listeners too. Well, you come back again real soon. You hear? <laughs> Ah, uh, William. <laughs> All right, Ellie, make plant it. Well, yeah, well, when you were, you were talking about B. Benaderet, you know the the petticoat right. lady. Yeah. I just I I watched the Flintstones the other night. It's like, oh my God, the Flintstones. She was the voice of Betty Rubble. Did you know that? She the was. Original, I didn't know that. Yeah, the original voice of Betty Rubble was B. Benaderet. You know from the. Uh, Petticoat Junction. I thought, wow. Wow. How about that? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, when you saw that, when you said that, it's like, oh, yeah, don't forget Betty Rubble. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> totally neither here nor there, but. Um, <laughs> That's great. So Petticoat Junction. Yeah, Junction. Yeah. All right, there's a the theme song. 
See, those things yeah, never uh, leave our heads, do they? No, they don't. They don't. <laughs> Commercials do too, I tell you. I know. Um, so, <laughs> well, you come back real soon. And, I will. And I will. Always, always thrilled to spend time with you. Oh, me too. Thank you guys so much, okay. and we'll talk soon. Okay, big hug. And from all of us here at Starseed Radio Academy, we thank you for listening, and we will be back next week. Until then, everyone, take care, and remember, count your blessings every day and be grateful. Good night. Good night. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. Thank you.